This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast. Welcome to our second podcast on redundancy. I'm Sophie Lockwood, an associate in the employment team at Charles Russell Speechlease. And today I'm with Trevor Bethany, head of employment. Good afternoon, Sophie. And Amelia Goodwin, an associate in the team. Hello. In the first podcast in this series, we looked at the theory of redundancy, the various options open to employees considering undertaking a redundancy exercise, and what they need to take into account when planning redundancies, including drawing up objective selection criteria and selection pools. In the second podcast, we'll be looking at the practical side of carrying out redundancies. So, Trevor, an employer's decided that there's a business case for making redundancies, and it's taken all the preparatory steps that we talked about in the first podcast, such as drawing up objective selection criteria, looking at the pools for selection, and assessing numbers and whether a collective consultation process will be needed. When should it make a formal announcement to staff, and how should it do this? Is there any specific format? Well, the decision on whether or not to make an announcement probably depends on the size of the exercise. If there are a lot of people involved or it will have a high profile, then the employer will probably um, want to make an announcement so that those affected have a broad idea as to what to expect and those who are not affected will know uh, what is going on and that they can control the messaging. If it's a smaller exercise, the employer might want to keep it low key and confine the process to those who are at risk or even those who are only uh, who are provisionally identified as redundant. Um, where there are standing employee representatives in place or a trade union is recognised in respect of the affected employees, then the employer probably doesn't want the union to take control of the narrative. So on balance, it is better to make an announcement to, to set the tone. It's a good tactic, I think, to tip off the elected reps or the union in advance that there's going to be an exercise, but not uh, too early in advance of that formal announcement so that they can preempt it. As far as the um, content of the announcement is concerned, there's no fixed form and no legal requirements as to whether to make an announcement or what it should contain. But I think, again, consistent with this idea of getting control of the narrative, the announcement should set out in broad terms what is happening and why and the possible implications. Um, making clear that it is not a notice of definite redundancies, it's noticed that there will be a consultation exercise which will only um, at the end of that exercise result in potential redundancies. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that an announcement has got to be aimed at two constituencies. There are those employees who will be affected, who will be looking for certain things, and also those employees who will not be affected, who probably need to be reassured. So the content has got to be geared to that. But generally, I think it's a question of explaining the process of consultation that the companies taking the issue seriously and acting responsibly and making every effort to try to avoid redundancies or to manage the redundancies in a consensual and, and pragmatic and fair way. Um, got to bear in mind that not everybody will be available for uh, to receive an announcement. Some people may be on maternity leave or sick leave. Most people at the moment are obviously working from home. So how are you going to actually communicate with people, whether by email or whether you're going to have some sort of group Zoom chat? Another point worth um, considering, including in the announcement, is whether you're going to ask for volunteers, um, bearing in mind the pros and cons of including volunteers in redundancy exercise. Then it's also worthwhile touching on what arrangements will be made pending consultation to 
make sure that people have IT access and um, what other internal and external communications will be in place. Thanks, Trevor. So, Amelia, what steps should an employer be taking after making that announcement? This depends on the number of employees who are at risk of redundancy. If there are 20 or more, then the employer will need to collectively as well as individually consult with the affected employees. If collective consultation is needed and an employer does not already have employee representatives elected, they will need to build in time to elect reps in accordance with statutory rules. Depending on the number of reps to be elected, this typically takes around a week. The employer will need to invite employees to stand as candidates for election, arrange for a ballot to take place. Typically, the easiest way for this to happen is via a voting platform such as SurveyMonkey. Once the representatives are in place, collective consultation can then begin. Where an employer is proposing to, to dismiss between 20 and 99 employees in a 90-day period, consultation must begin at least 30 days before the first dismissal takes effect. And where an employer is proposing to dismiss 100 or more employees, they must begin the consultation process at least 45 days before their first proposed dismissal. In advance of the first formal collective consultation meeting, the employer will need to provide the representatives with a letter summarising key information and the expectations of the representatives. The letter should contain a copy of the HR1 form. The need for a HR1 form was explained on our previous podcast. The number and description of employees it's proposed to dismiss as redundant in each department. The total number of employees of any such description employed at their particular place of work. The reasons for the headcount head reduction in each department the proposed methods of selecting employees for redundancy, the proposed method for carrying out the dismissals, including the period over which the dismissals will take effect, and the proposed method of calculating the amount of any redundancy payments to be made, where they're over and above the statutory redundancy payment. Collective consultation must be undertaken with a view to reaching agreement with the representatives on the ways and means of avoiding the dismissals, reducing the number of dismissals and mitigating their consequences. The employer should hold meetings with the reps to seek to progress consultation, listening to any objections or suggestions and giving the reps sufficient time to consult with the employees who they represent. The number of meetings will depend on the number of redundancies to be made and how the discussions progress. In the current circumstances, consultation may take longer than normal, as traditional town hall meetings cannot take place. After the last collective consultation meeting, the employer should write to the reps to confirm the results of the consultation. Thanks, Amelia. Trevor, what's the next step after collective consultation is complete or in situations when the employer doesn't need to collectively consult? Well, the employer's got to move on to deal with the individual consultation process, but that process will be shaped by the outcome of the collective consultation process if there has been one. And a lot of employers, I think, are keen to avoid collective consultation or see if they can avoid triggering the duty to consult at a collective level. But there are some advantages in that the purpose of that collective consultation process is to try to agree with the union or with the reps, the high level principles and issues as to how the redundancy exercise is going to be approached. So the, their life can be easier once that agreement has been reached with the reps because you don't have to go over the same material arguing and explaining and justifying it during the individual consultation process when you can say to the employee look we've discussed redundancy selection pools we've discussed redundancy selection criteria and we've agreed with the reps or with the union that this is the approach we're going to take so um, it's not something that we can revisit 
in each and every individual redundancy consultation exercise. But um, when you actually get as far as the individual process, the first step really is to identify what are the redundancy selection pools, again, taking into account what you've discussed with the reps or the union, and then to carry out the scoring by applying the agreed criteria to the redundancy selection pools. And those selection pools um, give rise to what is often the most difficult part of the individual redundancy consultation process, which is when the employee turns around and says, well, why me? Why have I been selected for redundancy? And one attractive way for the employer to dodge that question is to have a redundancy selection pool of one person. Obviously, there's only one person in the pool. It's not going to be necessary to apply criteria to decide which one is going to be made redundant. But a tribunal will scrutinize the employer's decision to uh, adopt a redundancy section pool of one and it may well have been um, a contentious issue in the consult in the collective consultation process but assuming you've got your selection pool reasonably clear then the employer has to score each potentially redundant employee in that pool using his selection criteria and typically applying some sort of selection matrix along the lines that we discussed in the previous podcast. And that scoring process can either be done by uh, one line manager, preferably with a second line manager to moderate to ensure consistency, or it could be done by two line managers. And I think it's worth having the involvement of two people to ensure the balance and consistency and avoid accusations that the scoring was done by one person who may have had a particular objective. And as far as the approach to selecting in or selecting out is concerned, some employers or most employers will uh, adopt a process whereby they are trying to score individuals in a pool to ascertain which one scores lowest and which one will therefore be selected for redundancy, which is a selecting out process. It's becoming increasingly fashionable to have a selecting in process whereby the employer is notionally saying, well, all of the roles in this pool are redundant and I'm now inviting all of those affected to apply for their jobs and I will assess them against the criteria for the job going forward. I think that's um, there's some slight dangers in there. It's really used to give employers a bit more latitude in adopting selective or subjective criteria to select to uh, keep the people that they they really want and I think uh, it can be harder to justify that but again ultimately it's down to the tribunal to identify whether an employer has acted reasonably in a way that any reasonable employer could have done in those circumstances but in any event the employer should be careful to make sure they retain the paperwork and an audit trail to demonstrate that the process has been done fairly and consistently and once the selection process has been completed, it's then time to prepare the at-risk letter, which is to warn employees who've been provisionally identified as redundant that they are at risk and will have to come along to a consultation meeting to help the employer to decide whether to confirm that provisional selection. So, Amelia, Trevor mentioned the at-risk letter. What should that letter say? The at-risk letter should contain sufficient information which will allow an employee to engage in their individual consultation meeting. It should therefore contain information such as the reasons for their selection, the selection criteria and scores that they have been given against that criteria, details of the redundancy pool they're in, 
whether there are any alternatives to their redundancies, such as another role within the organisation, for instance, what the next steps are, so when, when and how their individual consultation meetings will be held, and what the redundancy payment would be if they were to be made redundant. The letter should also set out whether the employee has the right to be accompanied to their individual consultation meetings. It's good practice to allow an employee to be accompanied by either a fellow colleague or a trade union representative to help with overall fairness. However, it's not a requirement under the ACAS code. And Trevor, what should be covered at the first individual consultation meeting? Well, if the at-risk letter has been well prepared, that really operates as the framework for the individual consultants uh, redundancy consultation meeting because the employer has set out the underlying reasons for the need to declare um, redundancies, set out the selection pool and should have given details of how the individual has been scored against the criteria applied to that pool. Again, it comes back to this uh, difficult question of, of why me, which is going to be the principal focus of the individual consultation meeting. But um, the meeting will then go on from that slightly thornier issue to talk about practicalities. So what, if the individual is going to be selected for redundancy, he'll want to know what payment is he going to receive? When will the employment terminate? What will, will he be doing between selection and the termination of employment? Will he be given time off for alternative work? Um, how many other people are being affected? And then the employee will have the chance to make comments or ask questions or respond to the proposals being made by the employer and there should be some some general discussion and the discussion should also deal with the issue as to whether there are any alternative roles whether in the employing entity or in the wider group and that discussion could extend not just to comparable roles or may even touch on whether the employee might be prepared to accept a, an inferior role on a reduced remuneration package or within it in requires different skill sets or something. The other issue that the employer should be thinking about is whether he's going to offer enhanced redundancy compensation terms or a settlement agreement and when he's going to introduce that idea. Thanks Trevor. So after the initial consultation meeting is it important to have a second meeting and following on from that at what point should you be sending the dismissal letter and what should it say? Well there's no requirement for a second or further consultation meeting and the focus should be on the quality of the consultation not on the number of meetings so if there has been a good discussion and all of the issues have been aired at the first meeting or the individual is satisfied and has no further comments or questions that require a response then one meeting should be sufficient but the more contentious the meeting and the greater the risk of challenge the more the benefit lies with the employer to at least be seen to offer a second consultation meeting and be seen to exhaust that that process but the real purpose of the meetings are for the employee to feed back comments and counter proposals and the employer ought to respond to those comments and be satisfied that he has uh, dealt with any issues that have been raised it won't necessarily be possible to deal with all comments and questions raised in the one meeting so it's sensible then to adjourn it and say well look i will go away and investigate what vacancies we've got in a different subsidiary or whatever questions you may not have been able to answer on the spot and the employee can then go away do, and do that resume the meeting and conclude the consultation process i think before dismissing it always looks better and is probably a good idea to sleep on it overnight rather than to give a decision there and then which 
can look a bit uh, premeditated or as if the employer hasn't bothered to sit down and reflect on any comments made. As far as the, the dismissal letter is concerned, again, most of the ground should have been covered in the at-risk letter. So it'll be a question of just briefly reciting the reasons for the redundancies, confirming that there has been a consultation process, uh, possibly the brief details of the points that were made, agreed or not agreed, and then confirming the decision to dismiss and the practical arrangements. The letter should touch on whether there is a right to appeal, although there is obligation to offer a right to appeal and confirm those final arrangements about timing, notice, return of property, holiday pay, um, whether the employee is going to be put on guard and leave and the cutoff of um, IT equipment etc. Finally Amelia, Trevor mentioned a right of appeal, could you elaborate upon how that works please? As Trevor said there isn't an obligation to offer the right of appeal but it is prudent to do so. Holding an appeal may allow an employer to address any defects in the earlier process and allow them to understand the extent of any potential dispute. If an employee does appeal their dismissal, the appeal should where possible be heard by someone more senior with no prior involvement in the decision-making process. Again, there's no right to be accompanied to this meeting, but it is good practice to allow an employee the right to be accompanied by either a fellow colleague or a trade union representative. Thank you, Trevor and Amelia. I'm sure that listeners found that very informative. In the third and final podcast in this series, we'll be looking at employee rights on redundancy, including payments, alternative employment and trial periods, time off to look for new work and loyalty bonuses, alongside other practical aspects of termination. Don't forget that if you'd like any particular advice or further information on redundancy or any other employment related matters, then you can contact me, Trevor or Amelia. Thank you for listening. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.